The days are getting shorter, and you can feel it in the air. Yes, it's that time of year. Pumpkin is finally back at Dunkin'. It's the cozy you've been craving all summer long, now in your cup at Dunkin'. Pick up all of your pumpkin favorites, like the signature pumpkin spice ice latte, or a pumpkin iced coffee, and bakery items like pumpkin donuts and muffins. Sip into something comfortable to celebrate the start of cozy season. Use the Dunkin' app for contactless ordering. America runs on Dunkin'. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber. Signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal. It was August 27, 1964. Ed was standing in the kitchen doorway, rifle cocked. He was wondering what it would feel like to kill his grandmother. Without a second thought, Ed aimed the rifle and shot his paternal grandmother in the back of the head. He then dragged her into her bedroom and stabbed her multiple times. His only regret was that he did not take her clothes off after he killed her. Welcome to SKB, Dissecting the Serial Killer's Brain. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. Ed Kemper had a difficult childhood. He lived in emotional isolation and was the constant subject of his mother's verbal abuse. By age 10, Ed exhibited a number of these common characteristics of serial killers. His struggle to fit in at home and at school continued as he entered his teen years. Ed's mother continued to berate and belittle him. She was concerned by Ed's inability to stand up for himself. Ed was embarrassed by his size. Remember that his mother ridiculed him, calling him a real weirdo and making fun of him because of his size. And he continued to withdraw further and further into a sick, deviant fantasy life. Ed's an intelligent man. In school, that should have made him stand out, but it didn't. Ed was big. This should have made him stand out in sports, but it did not. Ed was just different from other kids. Even the fact that he was left-handed made him an outcast. At 13, Ed was accused of killing the dog of a neighborhood boy. This accusation did nothing to quell the neighborhood children from treating him like a leper. One day, a group of neighborhood kids menacingly chased Ed until he ran into a neighbor's house where she called the police on his behalf. Bullying is, unfortunately, a part of childhood. Most children can seek comfort from their family, often their mother, but this was not the case for Ed. Clarnell found Ed's fear a sign of latent homosexuality. While there's no clear evidence that Ed has anything to do with the death of the neighborhood boy's dog, Ed did kill again. Remember that at age 10, Ed killed one of the family cats um, by burying it alive, later decapitating it and placing its head on a stick? His next kill happened one summer day in June when he was 13. Ed noticed that the family's cat had begun to prefer his sister and would not respond to Ed's attempts to train it. One day, while sharpening his knife and machete, Ed picked up the cat and sliced off the top of its skull. He then stabbed it repeatedly in the chest and the belly. Animal torture is practice for the budding serial killer. One of the disturbing things about Ed's latest cat murder 
was that he did not feel remorse. Um, He was, however, frightened at the prospect of his mother finding out what he had done. So he buried most of the cat in the backyard, and he cleaned up the mess that he had made. Well, he cleaned up almost everything. Ed kept some of the cat's parts and hid them in his closet. I'm saying I've wanted to kill my mother since I was eight years old, and I'm not proud of that. It started with surrogates at a non-human level. Physical objects, my possessions, other people's, destruction of things that are cared about, and then it's destruction of things that are living on a lower level, small animals, uh, insects, animals, and then finally people. By the end of the summer of 1963, Ed had gone to stay with his father in L.A. Remember that his father had remarried and had a stepson a couple of years older than Ed. Ed remembers this time with his father as a really positive experience for him. This next clip kind of illustrates the relationship or the relationship that Ed wanted with his father versus what he had with his mother. It's a little bit long, about three minutes, but it's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. At the age of 13, she finally lets me go visit my father, okay, down in L.A., where I was born. I'm in Montana, where she was born. I don't like Montana. It's cold in the winter, it's hot in the summer, it's miserable, and the people up there are nice people, but hey, they're not my people. That's what I'm saying now. I wasn't viewing or voicing those things then. I was feeling them, but I didn't know how to put them into words. So I finally get to come down and see my dad again, down in L.A., all right, one month. I never touched her purse again. That scared her. That really bothered her because she had ne- she beat me halfway senseless with that belt, trying to impress and, and in terror tactics. Okay, we're going to eat dinner, and I'm going to beat your ass afterwards. You know, so I can think about it for a half hour, or after some little thing she's doing. And she tried psychological tactics. She tried, uh, I'm going to put you in an orphanage. I'm going to disavow you, and none of that shit worked. So I go see my dad for thirty days. And my stepbrother and I, we go out and mow lawns. We say, gee, Dad, co- you know, you're going out to dinner tonight. Can we go someplace and eat? And he says, sure, give us a few dollars. We go down to some little diner down the street. He treated us like little men, like he wanted to be treated by his. He came from a matriarchal household, too. I guess if you know how that stuff runs in families, right? Matriarchal household, the son goes out and finds a mother image and marries her. I didn't know all this stuff back then. It would have made a lot more sense. Right, But I got this domineering grandmother on my father's side. I got this uh, domineering grandmother on my mother's side who died before I was born. But now she's reincarnated in my mother and her sister, my aunt. They're two very domineering, very aggressive, very successful women. Okay, so these two women are in terrible conflict with each other, competition, you know. And uh, they didn't get along at all. All right, so I'm in the middle of that trying to find my, my way. And I go stay with my dad, and he I, I can only say he reflected back on his childhood and said, gee, I wish I'd been treated this way. So that's how he treated me and my stepbrother. And we responded to that. We'd go, if we needed spending money, we would go out and we'd do tasks around the neighborhood, clean yards, rake this, mow that, water the flowers, and make a few dollars, and we'd have some fun. Okay, and then um, sometimes he'd ask us to do something. We'd do it because he was always fair with us. And kind, and he was generous with us. So 30 30 days of doing this opened up whole new feelings in me that I'd never had before. And I wish I'd had more experience with my father growing up. 
Unfortunately, Ed made his stepmother very uncomfortable. Apparently, his presence led to extreme migraines. So just about a week after he arrived in L.A., Ed's stepmother convinced E.E. to send Ed back to Montana. One day, Ed caught a glimpse of his stepmother naked, and he felt as if she had taken Ed's father away from him with her sexuality. Ed's half-brother, David, in a recent interview, his only interview, explains Ed's exile. Um, While Ed's stepmother was pregnant with David, Ed showed up at the house and he began spying on her and following her around. Ed's stepbrother showed up just in time to run him off. Um, And Ed really creeped out his stepmother and his effect on her lasted for the rest of her life. And so this was just yet another rejection for Ed at the hands of a woman. Well, back in Helena, Montana, with his overbearing and abusive mother, Ed longed to be with his father. So, a couple months later on Thanksgiving Day, Ed stole the family car and he ran away to his father's place in L.A. Ed was not welcome at his father's home, but E.E. did not know what to do with his son. So, when Christmas came, E.E. and his family went to visit Ed's paternal grandparents in North Fork, California. Ed, to his surprise, was left behind to live with them. His grandparents, Edmund Kemper I and Maud Kemper, had an isolated farm with lots of land for a 14- or 15-year-old boy to explore. Um, Should he so please? In an attempt to help Ed become a man, his grandfather gave Ed a rifle and a dog. He even offered Ed money for every rabbit or gopher he brought home. The only stipulation was that Ed was not to shoot birds. And of course, Ed began shooting the birds. Despite the attempts made by his grandparents, Ed continued to feel put upon and unwanted. Um, He had been rejected by the man he idolized. And he was left to live under the reign of another domineering and physically imposing woman. Maud was like 6'6". And he describes Maud, his grandmother, as an impossible bitch. During his time in North Fork, Ed would have these staring fits. And the staring frightened his grandmother, and so she berated him for it. And she actually thought that he was staring like that on purpose. Ed later described his grandmother as a woman who thought she had more balls than any man and continually emasculated him and his grandfather to prove it. I didn't go there for one thing. I got left there. We went there for Christmas for my father's in L.A. We went up to the mountains to stay for Christmas, and I got left behind. I was having friction with my stepbrother and my stepmother. There was problems there. Uh, We were vying for his interests, vying for his love. They were desperate because they're the new family. I'm desperate because I've never had the man in my life. I wanted my father's love. I wanted his approval. I wanted his recognitions. And we all got very greedy and desperate at that time. So we fought each other a lot. And it was a lot of friction, and he couldn't handle that. So he got rid of me. Uh, I was old family. I was already failure. So, you know, I got parked up in the mountains. There was a lot of dressing on it and window dressing and things. But I was up there with them for 10 months. Uh, At first, it was okay because it was the calm of being away from Montana. There wasn't the, the helliest stuff. I was going to a good school. Uh, as the months went on, uh, the veneer went away. My grandmother had made agreements with me from the gate that she wouldn't get into little humiliating mind games with me like my mother and stepfather had done, right? And I agreed I wouldn't do certain things, and then this mind game stuff started up. She decides she's going to raise me like she raised her three sons, and she's going to get rid of all this negative crap that my mother put on me. She's recognizing it as something my mother put on me, and I don't know that it wasn't. Some of it was. 
but a lot of it was my inability to deal with uh, complex, critical psychological situations. I could not deal with them. So I resisted it. I ran away. That was my answer to run. I ran from the people in Montana. I ran from my mother in Montana. Uh, I let my father park me up there to get away from the strife in L.A. Now I'm stuck. All the bridges, bridges are burned because my grandparents are there 24 hours a day. I can't run from them. She never let me get out of her sight for more than an hour without yelling my name out to see where I was. She was convinced I wanted to go down the mountain into town, a little North Fork, to uh, hang around with kids, rowdies and stuff, and be a juvenile delinquent. So she would never let me go down there on my own. She never let me leave the property. And I just it started simmering, I guess. Started building the, the, the passions and the tension. I started developing the fantasies toward her from my mother, killing her. And in the decapitation fantasies were even there. They were in, they were in place by then already. Ed finished the school year living with his grandparents in North Fork, and he seemed to be adjusting well. But then he went home for the summer to Montana with his mother and sisters. He returned to North Fork in August of his 15th year. Upon his return, Ed appeared to have reverted to his earlier behaviors. He began again to have fantasies of murder, all the while feeling an overwhelming anger build inside. He resented his grandmother. On August 27th, Ed felt a surge of rage, and he shot his grandmother in the head three times, wrapped her head in a towel, and dragged her body to the bedroom, and he waited for his grandfather to return home. Later, Ed recalled that he regretted not undressing his grandmother after he killed her. When his grandfather returned home, Ed shot him. He later states that he killed his grandfather to protect him from finding out that his wife was dead. Ed was now paranoid, and he was panicking, so he called his mother, of all people, for help. At his mother's urging, Ed called the police, and then he waited for them on the front porch. Um, a quick aside, when E.E. E. had left Ed to live with his parents, Clarnell called E.E. E. one night and said, and remember that his family called him, um, called Ed Guy. Uh, Clarnell said, quote, that guy is a real weirdo. Don't be surprised if you wake up one day to find out he killed your parents, end quote. taken into custody and he was questioned by the police. Ed told the detectives that he simply wanted to know what it would feel like to kill grandma. Declared a paranoid schizophrenic, the California Youth Authority remanded Ed to the Atescadero State Hospital for treatment where he spent the next five years. Paranoid schizophrenia is a chronic mental disturbance in which the individual loses touch with reality and exhibits a deep fear of others. Whether or not Ed was a paranoid schizophrenic is still kind of up for debate. So you might be wondering why the state of California would find it appropriate to incarcerate a 16-year-old boy with adult male sex offenders. 
because that's what a Tescadero was. Well, apparently, the judge felt that Ed would be safer among sexual deviants since, must, since you know, most of them were interested in molesting children or raping women and not accosting a six foot eight teenager. But the impact these five years that Tescadero must have had on a 16-year-old Ed were likely very horrific. So let me give you a little background on a Tescadero. It was built in 1954, and it was sort of a um, like a prison hospital hybrid that treated adult male mentally disordered sex offenders, rapists, child molesters, etc. A Tescadero was a different type of facility that was created to rehabilitate its residents. And you know, I think most of us in the in the true crime uh, world, we understand that pedophiles cannot be rehabilitated. Um, so back then, treatment was initially focused on separating offenders from society, and this was done in an effort to understand the mental illness and then reduce the residents' um, risks of reoffense. Today, there are about 1,200 beds, and about 48% of residents of at Atascadero are diagnosed as mentally disordered offenders, and these are individuals whose crimes were spurred on by their mental illness. The current, mental, um, the current mentally disordered offender diagnosis has been in use since 1986 when it replaced mentally disordered sex offenders. When Ed was committed to a Tescadero in 1963, many of its residents were considered mentally disordered sex offenders. During Ed's trial 10 years later for the co-ed killings, he was described as a sexual sadist. But where did that sexual sadism come from? Well, we can see that probably the, the seeds of it were planted early in Ed, but his time at Atescadero did not help things. While Ed was at Atescadero, he was subjected to a litany of psychological tests, including the MMPI, which is the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Index, and the Bender Visual Motor Gestalt Test. So the MMPI assesses um, psychopathy in adults, okay, and Ed was 16, and the Bender Gestalt measures developmental disorders and neurological impairments in children. Ed later told a reporter for True Crime magazine that he had helped to develop an additional inventory for the MMPI, um, which was a hostility scale. It was during his time at Atescadero that Ed discovered he had a very high IQ. It's been reported to be anywhere between 136 and 145, which is categorized as genius or near genius. His half-brother, David, said that Ed's IQ was probably much higher than reported, closer to 180. According to his brother, Ed would fake lower results on the test. David described Ed as a sociopathic super genius. And again, this is years later in his one interview. Because of Ed's high intelligence and his strong work ethic, several of the psychologists took a vested interest in him. And they even began to give him special privileges in an effort to help boost his sense of self-worth. In their misguided attempts to help Ed, the psychologists were inadvertently giving Ed the tools he would need to later fool them into thinking he was cured. Ed helped to administer and score um, some, of these, some of these psychological tests, and this allowed him to get to know the right answers. What is the impact of a teenage boy being locked away amongst a bunch of sickos who are incarcerated for horrific sexual acts? To start, Ed had no formal or informal sex education. He was now in the intense throes of puberty, but instead of having peers to experiment with, he was instead surrounded by sexual deviants. Ed entered a Tescadero with some issues, which is kind of the understatement of the century, um, and these issues were surrounding sexuality. And as you might recall, because sex was not discussed in the Kemper household at all, he had no understanding. Um, 
So any of that fighting that happened between Clarnell and E.E., that may have planted the seeds for Ed's violent sexual fantasies. In his 1970 book, Our Violent Society, Dr. David Abrahamson proposed the idea that in families where sex is taboo, a child may interpret intercourse as a bloody crime scene which they are forbidden to watch. He goes on to describe what happens when there is violence in the home and when one parent ridicules the other um, and when one parent shows no respect for their spouse. If the child does not have a strong same-sex model, the, the results of this can be devastating. In the Kemper house, Ed's father was weak and passive, while his mother was strong and domineering. This power differential, coupled with Clarnell's constant abuse directed at E.E. and Ed, likely helped to shape Ed's demented perceptions of sex. One of the other things with which Ed seemed to have difficulty was the changing roles of women in society. So the women's movement in the 60s and 70s, and for those of you who are, um, you know, were born in the 90s or 80s, 80s, 90s, or even early 2000s, the women's movement, it's hard to imagine that it hasn't all, that the world hasn't always been this way, but the women's movement in the 60s and 70s really significantly changed the women's place in the home and, and society. And a lot of people would say that this was based on the invention of the birth control pill and that this this um, allowed women a freedom in a way they had not had before. So Clarnell, who Ed both loved and hated, he, he was so frustrated with her strength and her hatred of men. And later in interviews, Ed talks about the women's movement and kind of how he viewed the whole thing. He also talks about his mother as an early... Um, women's equality uh, model, role model for him, but it's not really in a positive way. Uh, my mother was there. She was there to beat me. She was there to humiliate me. She was there to use me as an example of how inferior men are. And that was a great little lady there. She uh, kind of preceded this female movement we have now of getting rights, of getting equal rights, of getting equal standing, of getting equal presence in various... Uh, Theaters. But actually, you had experimented. Uh, oh, I was finding out the hard way what women's rights and women's antagonism. I mean, women are drawn about things like that. They get upset about the belittlements they get and, and their the, the lack of uh, equal quality that they should that they have that they experience. Unfortunately, my mother developed, and I'm, I'm not. It's not fair to talk about a dead person that way. They can't defend themselves. They can't give you another perspective on what really happened. I can only surmise from to try to be fair looking back on it i'm seeing that she was making an effort to balance her pain with what she was experiencing so let's get back to teenage ed um living his life at a tescadero well i don't think anyone would disagree that teenage boys have a normal preoccupation even obsession with sex ed was no different what was different for Ed was that the sexual education he received during the sexually formative years from like 15 to 21, um, this education was often twisted and warped because it came from the minds of um, sexual deviants, and likely this contributed significantly to Ed's violent sexual fantasies. Listening to convicted molesters and rapists talk about their past and future crimes began to fit into Ed's violent sexual fantasies and his interest in inanimate partners. Well, what's a sex offender exactly? 
Well, sex offenders lack empathy. They have problems in personal and social interactions. They have poor coping mechanisms, impulse control, or self-management skills. Sex offenders often have deviant sexual interests that include non-consensual sex, inflicting pain or humiliation on others, and voyeurism. A Tescadero had an open floor plan, and I imagine it was a similar setup to uh, to the dorms in the, the way Orange is the New Black, the way those are set up. And so what this allowed was residents um, had access to one another. And when there were no guards or clinicians in earshot, many of the sex offenders would discuss what crimes they would commit when they were released. And Ed noticed one thing. He noticed that offenders always left their victims alive and thus were caught. So we have to remember that Ed began having violent sexual fantasies at a very young age. He was already associating sex and violence, imagining a world in which people were inanimate. In Vronsky's book, Serial Killers, The Method and Madness of Monsters, he states that, quote, 50% of serial killers admitted that their first rape fantasies began between age 12 and 14, end quote. And as a quick aside, the average boy begins to masturbate between 10 and 12. And this is important to remember. So we know Ed had morbid fantasies early. And recall that when his sister teased him about kissing um, the second grade teacher, he said he'd have to kill her if he wanted to kiss her. He peeped on this teacher, and he described um, how he had fantasies about dragging her dead body off to make love to it. Bronsky goes on to write that 73% of sexual sadistic serial killers were exposed to or encountered a sexually stressful event. We know about the confusing experiences with his sister and cousin, but was there more? Remember that Clarnell began sending Ed to the basement to sleep because he um, tortured and killed small animals and apparently had tried to molest his sisters. Sexual arousal or desire originates in the brain, specifically in the amygdala, the ventral striatum, and the orbitofrontal cortex. So let's start with the amygdala. The amygdala is part of your emotional brain, and it's larger in males than females, and it's larger specifically in an area that's responsible for the uptake or absorption of testosterone. And in general, testosterone is linked to aggression. The amygdala communicates with many areas of the brain, attaching emotional memory when it's activated. The amygdala can trigger extreme pleasure, memories of sex, erection, and even orgasm. So let's add another layer to that. The amygdala also has tons of opiate receptors and natural endorphins, and these are activated during pleasure-seeking behaviors. The ventral striatum is part of the, it's part of the, the amygdala's pleasure-seeking pathway. And this area has tons of dopamine receptors because of its close proximity to the cells that create dopamine. And dopamine, um, if you don't know, dopamine is that feel-good hormone. It's that feel-good neurotransmitter that gives you the sense of euphoria in huge amounts, right? And that's where addictions come from. It comes from this drive to feed um, your need for dopamine. So the activation of opiate receptors and endorphins, like I said, is linked to addiction. So the next part is the orbitofrontal cortex. And this part um, specifically is linked to impulse control and it's in, in, fear, um, in fear activation. So it's thought to mediate reward and punishment. And when there's damage to this area, it can lead to increases in risky behavior with the absence of anxiety about this behavior. 
So people are patients with non-functioning neurons in the medial orbitofrontal cortex were shown in several studies to have an increased sex drive and an inability to control their response to sexual stimuli, in extreme cases leading to hypersexuality, drug use, gambling, and an inability to empathize. So what happens when a teenager develops violent, sadistic rape fantasies? In a normal environment, living with a loving, supporting family and having a healthy understanding of male-female relationships, along with exposure to appropriate emotional and sexual experimentation with age-appropriate partners, the chances of developing deviant sexual desires would be much lower than they were in somebody like Ed. Deviants can be easily reinforced because the human brain exhibits something called neuroplasticity. In neuroplasticity, um, if we break the word down, neuro means brain, nervous tissue, and plasticity means the ability to adapt and change. So neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to be molded. When you engage in a specific pleasure-seeking behavior, you get the release of these awesome feeling chemicals, dopamine, um, and so you engage in the behavior again and again and again, making the pathway of the habit stronger and stronger and your need um, for more and more of whatever that is to get the same feeling. Ed developed quicker than other boys his age. So it stands to reason that he may have begun to masturbate as early as eight or nine. And if Ed began having um, sexually violent fantasies as early as age eight, were these fuel for his masturbation? And masturbation is a form of operant conditioning, and this is the use of consequences to modify behavior. Think Pavlov's dogs, right, when they were conditioned, or the scene from The Office when Jim conditions um, Dwight to automatically reach for a mint when Jim restarts his computer. So it's this, um, it's this repetitive thing. The more and so when this, when this is then attached to something deviant, the more the deviant thought or image is masturbated to, the more, um, the more the orgasm is directly associated with that deviant. In interviews, Ed talks about the different fantasy periods he went through. He would imagine that he was the last person on Earth and that eventually um, that wasn't enough. So he imagined that everyone else in the world was, in, was inanimate and that they couldn't affect him. These are really bad signs. So now imagine a psychologically disturbed 16-year-old Ed Kemper. He's surrounded by sexual deviants who shared with Ed stories of sexual offenses and who described sexual fantasies and offenses they plan to carry out. These violent, sexually deviant fantasies are reinforced every time Ed masturbates to the fantasy, reinforcing it. So it starts to, it starts to make sense of the monster that is Ed Kemper. So I'm adding to the problem, the impetus of this negative orientation. I must be really evil little kid because I'm thinking all these horrible things. I was in thinking of them in increasing amounts and increasing frequency, so it's a kind of conditioning. And negative conditioning that uh, I wasn't aware of other than effect. I noticed that if I worked on a certain scenario, a certain kind of patterning in my fantasies, Right. After a while, it became numb. It became insignificant. It became not enough. So I had to add embellishments to it, a new level. And it just very subtle, but over many, many years, it just kept going more and more. I've known young people that I've been able to talk to honestly, and they've been knowing them well enough and friendly enough over enough years, share with me, because it was, it was real, of real importance to me to know where I dove off the deep end. And they would admit that sometimes they, and they went off into happier orientations, 
they had a period where they went off into some real morbid, morbid or negative fascinations, but they grew out of it, quote-unquote, grew out of it. it. It stopped providing a service that they needed. It stopped filling a hole or a gap. Or, let's say an adult came along and started sharing something with them or showed them a new avenue of uh, acting out that completely obliterated that need or vacated it, and they let it go. Most of what we know about Ed comes from his own mouth, so it's hard to know what is truth, what's fiction, and what Ed hasn't told anyone. His stepbrother believes that Ed has only shared about 70% of the truth of his crimes. When Ed was released from Atascadero in 1969, his doctors recommended that he be sent to a halfway house where he would be in a controlled environment each night. Halfway houses help their residents find a job, go to college, and even engage in social activities. Of all the recommendations from Ed's doctors, the most important of these was that Ed should not be allowed to return to his mother. Ed remained in the custody of the California Youth Authority, um, and he should have had regular meetings with a social worker, parole officer, and therapist, but very little of this happened. What did happen was that Ed got paroled to the custody of his mother. So after a Tescadero, Ed spent three months in the Central Valley as a ward um, of the California Youth Authority. He did really well. He went to community college, and he earned straight A's. He was then paroled to his mother for the next 18 months. So Ed is now 21, and he had been paroled to his mother. Clarnell had relocated to Santa Cruz, and she was working as an administrative assistant to the campus provost when Ed came to live with her. The vicious fighting between Clarnell and Ed began almost immediately. Once Ed got a steady job, he was able to save up enough money to move out of his mother's home sometime in 1970-71. Ed claims that Clarnell continued her domineering and belittling verbal assaults from afar. So at this point, Ed was working at the Division of Highways, and he had an apartment with a male friend. He often hung out at a bar frequented by local cops called the Jury Room. It was here that he was given the nickname Big Ed. He purchased a motorcycle in 1970 or 1971, and he wrecked it twice. In one of these wrecks, Big Ed sustained a head injury, and he was probably about 22 when he sustained this head trauma, and that's important. With a settlement from the motorcycle accident, Ed bought a 1969 two-door sedan, the 1969 two-door sedan. But before we move on, let's talk about head injuries and their impact on a not-yet-fully-developed prefrontal cortex. The prefrontal cortex is where higher mental functions occur, decision-making, impulse control, those sorts of things. So this area of the brain is not fully developed until around age 25. Well, why is this important? Think about it like this. Um, Who is it that we send to the front lines during war? Young men, 18, 19, 20 years old. We don't send middle-aged women onto the front lines, right? So this is partly due to huge levels of testosterone in men of this age group, along with a not-yet-fully-developed prefrontal cortex. And this is what makes them the best choice, because they have no fear. I have a 19-year-old son who is incredibly smart and has a great sense of self, but even he recognizes the truth between behind the stupidity of teenage boys. Um, so... An injury to the head sustained before the prefrontal cortex is finished growing and synapsing, it often leads to impairment in many of these higher-order functions. There is no definitive proof that Ed sustained any long-term damage to his brain, 
But the medical community in the 60s and 70s did not fully understand the dangers of head trauma. So concussions were not reported very often, not even in the NFL back then. So during the couple of years following a Tuscadero, one of Big Ed's escapes was driving. Having spent the entirety of his teenage years in an institution, um, when he was released, he discovered that he loved to drive. So he spent hours driving and eventually began to pick up hitchhikers, um, especially female hitchhikers. And he would simply take them where they wanted to go, practicing his social skills. There is still a whole lot more of Big Ed Kemper to talk about. Join me next episode is I discuss Ed's 1972-73 murder campaign. And I'll wrap up episode three with some genetics, some more brain trauma stuff, and top it off with an in-depth um, discussion of necrophilia. It could have meant to be, it could be meant to be, it should be meant to be, just you and me, what did I You can follow me on most of your social media platforms at skbpod, or you can visit the website at www.skbpod.com for more information about the show and for a little blog that I do. It's not much, but it's just a little bit with some pictures and that sort of thing. If you're enjoying SKB, take a moment to give it a five-star review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spreaker, Podcast Republic, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to thank you for joining me on my journey to understand evil. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Touch-free QR code payments. No seller fees until 2021. Not applicable to PayPal here transactions. Other fees may apply. Shop safe with PayPal. <sighs> Sorry I'm late, everyone. It's all right. The meeting's just getting started. 
Are you in your closet? Yeah, it's the quietest place. <clears throat> ah, not the roomiest, though. Getting closer with your closet these days? That, uh, dinosaur costume behind you? What? No. <laughs> the Container Store's custom closet sale is here to help with up to 25% off closet systems and free virtual in-home closet design. Who wants Sean to put on the dino suit? Really, guys? The Container Store, where space comes from.